nine. Ignition sequence start. Six. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Launchpad, Rocket Fuel's interview series where we interview prominent members either in the Rocket Pool community, people adjacent to the Rocket Pool community, or doing really cool things in crypto. Today's guest is Nixo, who is the executive director. Is that right? Yep. Executive, right. yeah, that's right. Executive director of EatStaker, um, the really great organization that is helping uh, decentralize Ethereum and do really other cool things with helping people get online and staking um, and st- really promoting staking from home. So, welcome, Nixo, to Rocket Fuel's Launchpad series. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you here and um, I'm really excited to chat to you. How are Thanks you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm super stoked to be on your show. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, Let's let's get started with like um, who you are, right? So, can you tell us a little bit about like who you are and like what you do? Sure. So, uh, like right now, or my or who I am as a as a human being, <laughs> wherever you'd like to start, both both okay. work. Yeah. Uh, so, my name is Nixo. I'm the executive director of Eastaker. Um, my entire goal with Eastaker is to uh, make sure like Ethereum grows up as something that is the part of the whole reason that I got into crypto, something that makes the world more fair, um, more decentralized, more accessible for like financial systems and applications, um, sort of changes the way that the information asymmetry affects wealth disparity. Um, and one of those things is passive income is something that is um, really sought after by a large majority of the world. Everybody's Everybody's dream goal is to have passive income. Um, staking is that, and I would like to see people, the people who are benefiting from that be home stakers and, um, people who are doing this at very small scale and people who care about the network and people who are engaged rather than it just being funneled into one big organization that benefits from the economies of scale and, uh, basically gets a bunch of disinterested parties putting their money in who don't actually care about Ethereum, who aren't engaged in the protocol, um, and so I think I think Ethereum just grows up as a better protocol if it has more home stakers and offers a lot of support to the home stakers that do exist. Okay, I'm going to set a drinking game with the audience now about the word home staker. So they're going to have to take a shot every time you say home staker and see what yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> either home staker or like gold standard of staking, like either of those terms. Like oh let, let's yeah. <laughs> And I don't drink, so I'm just going to watch and like laugh at everyone. So, yeah. Perfect. One one shot if it's a, a home staker, two shots if it's a solo staker. Yeah. Okay. So, um, let's let's take a step back now and let's go back to um, where your story begins, Nixo. Like, um, how far back do you want to go? And to if we want to like, start putting the threads together of like where you are now, like where does the story begin? Sure. So um, I'm going to go back to how I got into crypto. Um, so the okay. way that I got into crypto is in um, when I was in when I was in college, um, I wanted to buy some LSD and um, I bought some LSD. And the person who gave it to me said, make sure you put it under your tongue, which I, I was um, I was a chemistry major. And so I mm-hmm. was like a little bit familiar with sort of um how things should be working and i knew that um lsd is a bioavailable um chemical and so you should be able to just like lick it and stick it to your forehead and it doesn't matter where you take it but i do know that some derivatives of lsd 
um, don't work, aren't bioavailable and don't work like that. Um, and so I figured it was a derivative. I had no way to tell. I like could have gotten a testing kit. Um, but I, I really just wanted, I wanted to know like how, how I could find, um, drugs in a way that like I knew what it was. I felt safe. Um, I, so I, I did a bunch of research online on, um, if I could, if I could find some LSD to safely take. And I ended up finding Silk Road. Um, and, you needed Bitcoin to do that. And so I um, went down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin. And when I first um, did this, I think it was like 2012 or 2013. And so uh, the way that I got the way that I first got Bitcoin is I had to go to local Bitcoins and I went to somebody's some miners house um, <clears throat> and I sat next to him with our laptop, our laptops next to each other. His like his daughter was in the room um, <laughs> and he was like absolutely um, just talking about how Bitcoin was the best thing ever and how it was a really cool technology and like saying all the things that like I wish I had listened to. But I was sitting there going like, you know, I'm buying drugs with this, right? <laughs> You're a crazy person. Um <laughs> So uh, I still have his daughter made me like a little certificate. She was six years old and she made me a little certificate and glitter pen that said, like, congratulations, you have 100 Bitcoin. And I, I still have that. And it's like painful to me now. Um, but uh, so I uh, years passed. Um, I watched the price of Bitcoin jump up to like a thousand dollars. And I was like, wow, I really screwed that up. That guy was not crazy. He was right. Um, and I started looking for more opportunities and started looking into Bitcoin. And of course I was that, like that person who just had FOMO. I just wanted to know what the next big thing was. So I went online. I found like, I think Litecoin was a thing at the time. Um, and I had my, the Mount Gox by that point, my Mount Gox account had already been rugged. Like Mount Gox had already imploded. Um, so I created a new uh, account at a really sketchy Russian exchange called BTCE. And I was like, I'm just going to buy whatever, whatever like coins are available on here. Um, and then I'll, I'll see how it goes. So I bought like uh, some coins and then logged out and didn't log back in for like six months. I came back six months later and I was like, I'm going to check on, check on these and see how my coins are doing. Um, they were doing terribly. So I was like, you know what? I should do some research on what I bought. Like we should figure out if this is a good investment. So I did some research and <laughs> realized that I had not bought cryptocurrency at all. I had bought Russian rubles. <laughs> um, felt like a gigantic idiot. Um, ended up buying some, uh, more Bitcoin and some Litecoin left it on the exchange. At this point, I had still never had a self-custodied wallet. Hmm. Uh, and then BTCE rugged. And um, I think like weeks or months later, it came back. It came back online uh, and said, uh, he, your balance, your balance, your, your balance is still reflecting like what you had in it before we, before we rugged. I think it was under new ownership. Um, and since we don't really have this in the treasury right now, if you withdraw all of your assets, you're going to get something like 40% of, um, what your balance is. But if you wait, um, 
you can vest your full your full balance. And I was like, cool, what could go wrong? So I left it in there. Um and they rugged again. <laughs> yep. Um so I at this point, like I was learning, I was I feel like I was going through like the trial by fire that everybody mm-hmm. in this time period was going through. Um finally set up a self-custodied wallet, uh, started learning about Ethereum. Um, and I bought Ethereum after, like, I missed the whole crowd sale, the um, excitement, because I wasn't actually, like, in the community. The most in the community that I was is uh, BTCE had a troll box, just like Poloniex had a troll, troll box. Um, a lot of it was in Russian, so I was, like, tuning out. But when I got on Poloniex, there was a lot more conversation that I would follow. Um but I never ended up like looking for a community. And then at some point I found ETH trader and I was kind of lurking in the, in the um, ETH trader daily. Uh, and like, occasionally I would post and basically I would just post to be like, there are girls here. <laughs> um, and uh, then the whole, the 2017, 2018 bull market happened my family started getting into crypto um, just because there was like excitement and everybody was like, what can I gamble on? Um, and a friend of mine got a bunch of my family to buy EOS at the time. Uh, but then everything, everything, uh, the bear market started, everything imploded. Um, the ICO craze passed and uh, I tuned out of crypto for a few years until um, I think just after the pandemic started, I started seeing this number 32 and I was like getting interested. I was like, what, what is this number? Went back to look for the ETH trader daily, could not find it. I missed all of the drama that happened like between the, the transition between ETH trader and ETH finance. So I went and found the ETH finance daily. Um, and of course there, uh, the ETH staker, like the, the excitement about staking was just getting started. So I watched the launch of the beacon chain happened. And then uh, I will always be sad that it was not till a few months later that I actually um, decided to start staking. Um, so started staking a few months after the beacon chain launched. And then it it's like kind of a, um, it's kind of a technical endeavor. And so learning how to do that and like trying to figure out what the technical aspects of it are and under like understand the fundamentals of it it's one of those things that you just, you feel good about being competent in it. And so I would come back, I would help other people. And the more I helped other people, uh, the more I learned. And eventually um, Fizz reached out, Super Fizz reached out to me and was like, you're answering a lot of questions in here. You're doing a great job. Do you want to help moderate? Um, and I was so excited uh, that he asked me that. And I was like, I responded in kind. I responded with such excitement that he actually, um, he responded to my message and he said something like, I think I think we got our wires crossed. Um, I'm not asking you to moderate ETH Finance. I'm asking you to moderate ETH Staker. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I'm so excited. And he was like, okay, it's very small subreddit. Um but uh, that's how I got into that. And the way that I put it is like the E-Stake, the reason I'm the executive director of E-Staker right now is because I just kept offering to help with things and nobody told me to to screw off at any point. And like the more that I helped, the more people were like, yes, whatever, do it. <laughs> okay. So that's amazing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, 
I really like like that whole summary of like a good seven eight year period there. So let's actually like take a few steps back, like all the way back to the beginning. Um, you said you were studying chemistry in college. Like how how was that? Let let's go back to where you started your story. So, like what what made you choose chemistry? How was it? What was going on with that? Um, I just, I was, you know, I went into college undecided. Um, and so mm. I took a bunch of classes and chemistry was one that I felt that I was good at. Um, and you know, general chemistry kind of lulls you into this false sense of security and then you get into organic chemistry. And by that time you've already chosen your major and you realize the mistake that you've made. Um, but then I, I was, I went to a university that had like the most amazing chemistry professors. They, um, only, they, they really, really cared about their students and they spent a lot of time and effort. And I think that they, the, um, whoever the hiring, um, board was at that, as at that university would like, they should teach classes on how to hire professors because those professors made me feel so competent and like, I had um, one of my favorite classes was physical chemistry and physical chemistry is notoriously the most difficult chemistry course. Um, but I just had such an amazing professor that we, all of us were all were, like, all of the students felt like we were in it together. We all bonded over like how hard the class was. Um, and that's how I felt throughout the, my enti- entire chemistry um, undergrad is uh, yeah. I just loved it. Yeah. And tell me about like the, the um, like lifestyle you had at the time. Of course, you were doing drugs with LSD. Um, what, what else was happening in your life at that time? Like how was Nick sort of person like living day to day? It was not. So I didn't actually do that many drugs. I just I okay. wanted to do like a lot of research. I, I mm. am like in general, like a quite a careful person when it comes to things like that. I get really paranoid um, that mm. things could be like. I mean, we all grew up with the same scary mantra that like, if you smoke weed, it could be laced with something, um, which probably never was the case. But um, I just I wanted to do all the research. And like, that's I was really I really liked the um, the website Arrowhead because do you know do you know what Arrowhead is? No. So Arrowhead is is a, um, a drug education website. And basically, it's like Wikipedia, but for drugs. So you can log on and like know what drugs should look like, know what um, they should cost, know what like people's experiences are, what they like, there's a section on the chemistry of how it works. And so you can like do all of the research and know what you're getting into before you get into it, which I, I think is like a really good thing because I know lots of people who have done drugs that they didn't they, they weren't sure what it was supposed to look like. They bought something different. They had a dangerous experience or they died. And like, they, it just shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that. There should be more education yeah. and there should be Silk Road. Silk Road was amazing. Like it was basically like buying on Amazon. Like um, people had ratings, they had uh, certificates up there. Um, and so I just, I really liked that it was a safe way um, to experiment and do the because like a lot of people in college experiment with that kind of stuff. But because it's like the one wild, crazy thing, they like throw away all of their their caution. They throw mm. all the caution to the wind and just like are like, well, it's this one time. And that could be the one time that like screws Something the rest of your happens. life. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so how did you find Silk Road then? Like, how did that happen? Reddit. I found it yeah. on Reddit. <laughs> 
So if 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 Willis look through your Reddit history, would they find like you posting on like those drug Reddits back then, or was that a different username that you used? You know, I um, no, no, I I have been switching my <laughs> username for so long. So even when I was at E Finance, um, I was changing my username every every three months. Okay. And when Fizz finally reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to moderate the subreddit, he said, "If you're going to moderate the subreddit, you need to." St- or no, he. He gave me a speaking opportunity um, at EY and said, if you're going to mm-hmm. go speak at EY, you need to stop changing your username. Um, and so I've always I've always kind of done the throwaway thing. So like um, I had a little bit of Bitcoin on Mt. Gox when it um, when it got hacked. But I, uh, I I never even filed a claim because I don't know. I, re- I remember that the email that I used to log in was a Tor mail address, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. it was and I don't have the logging credentials for it anymore. Um, and so I've always sort of like switched all of my usernames every few, every period of time. Yeah. So then you discovered Silk Road and then you needed Bitcoin, of course, to buy your whatever you wanted to buy from Silk Road. And you found local Bitcoins, which is what a lot of people used back then, right? And you ended up at this miner's house. Can you tell me that story? Like, how did you find this miner and like, what was the deal there? Um, yeah, I've like tried to look through my text history because I'm just curious. This guy has got to be so wealthy now. I'm so happy too, because he lived in like not a super wealthy area of San Diego. He lived in a tiny little cramped apartment, his house, like everything was covered in Bitcoin memorabilia. He had like posters on the wall. He had a little casacious coin that he showed me. His daughter knew what Bitcoin was. Like he was really into it. And so he has <laughs> got to be like an insanely wealthy person now. But I could not find the text exchange that I had with him. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure what happened is we just connected um, on local Bitcoins. He sent me an address and me as an early 20 year old girl, I drove over there and probably was like, should I go in this person's house? But as soon as he walked out with a six year old, I was like, I feel great. Like this. Yeah. This actually makes me feel a lot better. Um, And he was super nice. I really wish that I had listened to him a little bit more uh, because he had a lot of good things to say, but I just, I wasn't listening. I was in my early twenties. I was, I was very um, adamant about like, like completing this task that I had started. Um, And so I was like, not going to let anybody derail me. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, your goal was just to get an SD, right? It wasn't to like think about other ways of money or, or like anything like that or investments even probably or thinking about like what it might be worth in 10 years time like you just wanted the lsd like yeah so what was what was he he was a miner i presume right like you said he was a miner did you see like his mining material like his rig and stuff or did he have it in the house or was it you know like I, elsewhere? I was not i was not aware of like the fundamentals of Hmm. uh, cryptocurrency at the time and so i didn't know that like bitcoin was created through mining so if Hmm. even if it was there i wouldn't have known what to look for um so yeah maybe it was probably there but i i didn't recognize it wow okay and then um what about the certificate that the daughter made you? Do you think she had it ready for everyone who came to buy some Bitcoin or did she make it just for you? No, she made it just for me. She was sitting there and she was like, oh. how much are you buying? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you're very interested. And she made it. And, um, She made it right then and there. I don't know if she made them for everybody, but I don't think she yeah. did because after I left, I remember I, I threw it in the back seat 
and like the glitter pen um, hadn't fully dried. So it's, it got smeared with some stuff that like rolled over it in the back seat. Mm. The guy texted me afterwards and was like, Hey, I forgot to ask, can I get a picture of that? Oh, no. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I sent him a picture and it was like all smeared and blurry. And I was like, well, I'm never going to see that guy again. Whatever. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember how much you paid for it? I think it was like $6 a coin. Wow. Was was the drugs like worth like $4 million? <laughs> um, well, the 100 Bitcoin that I bought um, eventually, like it would have been a lot of a lot of money <laughs> if I had okay. a lot to it. But I, I feel a lot better um, knowing that like, I, the the real point of it is if it had gone from $6 to $12, I would have sold it. Like if yeah. I had held on to that and it had doubled, I was, I was a poor college student at the time. I was using my student loans for this. Like I wasn't, I didn't have a source of income. I had student loans and like, um, it was my, it was my spending money for the, for the semester. Um, and so, yeah, if it, if it had hit a thousand dollars, that would have already been more money than I had ever seen. So I would have just been like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that that's quite a common like idea that people have, right? Like, is like, oh, if I if I was in at that time, I would have sold at like two x or five x or ten x at the very most. Like, you know, that is more money than like you know those at that young age you would have had maybe like, or you would have had to work months to have that much money. So it would have totally made sense to sell it and yeah, definitely. not held it until and it was like, worth I, $4 I was dollars. driving a, but um, that's that's the way it goes right like you you never know what's going to be happening and in the future so when did you then like did you buy more bitcoin like you said you had a mount cox account like what how did you get into mount cox so uh mount cox is how uh is the address that i used it's the the custody address that I used to, um, mm. for that guy to send me Bitcoin. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to deal that with self-custody at the time. I, I don't yeah. even think I knew what self-custody was at the time. Yeah. I just created a Mt. Gox account and I was like, okay, here's my address. Send me, send it to here. Um, and then, um, yeah, I had a little bit left and I think I donated a little bit, um, to Arrowhead at the time because Arrowhead made this big showing of like accepting Bitcoin really early. And I was really stoked that they did that. Yeah. And then that's it. You, you, it was all used up. The hundred Bitcoin was gone, never to be seen again. Never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. You, I'm sure you had some memorable experiences with the the materials it bought for you. So that's definitely something. You know, I um, I felt like really proud. Like mostly, mostly this whole the the part of this process that I really liked was was learning how to buy Bitcoin, like. I learned how to use Tor for this. Um, I ended up like exploring all the parts of the, the dark web. And so when people were talking about the dark web, when it was like really becoming a news item, yeah, most people had never seen it. And so to be able to be like, oh, yeah, I've been on there. I've like seen all of the murder for hire websites mm -hmm. and like all of the postings, um, that kind of thing really empowers a person to feel like, um, you know, I, this wasn't that hard. Like I figured out how to do it. I'm proud of myself. Um, and I feel like I could do more, 
especially when everybody around you is like, oh, I wouldn't know how to use Tor. And you're like, wow, but I did figure it out. And so like, what else can I do? And I think that Mm -hmm. that kind of thing is the thing that um, really is missing from it's, I think it's why a lot of women aren't in tech um, because they don't really go through this kind of thing. They're, they kind of just sit on the sidelines and they're, and they, they do say like, I, I couldn't do this because nobody tells them like the, the society as a whole doesn't really tell them like you're good at technology. Like boys are told a whole lot that they're good at technology. And there's just like this, this bias towards noticing um, boys' aptitudes towards technology and sort of like sidelining girls. Um, and my my dad was the polar opposite of that. Um, when I was uh, probably nine or 10, there was a um, computer in the garage and I, I, found, I found it, I plugged it in um, and I was messing around on it. And it was like, it was a command line computer. It was, um, it had MS DOS 3.2. And I don't think I did very much on it. I was just like trying to figure out how to navigate the file structure. I think I was just trying to create text files and like, um, and just writing text files on it and then saving them and then going back to them. Um, but that was the, that was like my first, our first family computer. And then after that, when I was in like high school, our family computer, my dad, my dad was an IT person, um, and he he is an IT person, and he would he loved to experiment with different operating systems. He was really into Linux, and so we had like um, Red Hat, Fedora. We had like uh, he went through a bunch of different Linux distributions, and so whenever we wanted to use the family computer in high school, we had to figure out whatever operating system my dad had put on it. Um, and then when I went to college, um, I needed a laptop and, um, I really wanted a MacBook, but they were too expensive. And he bought me a windows computer and said, but you know what, if you want to, if you want like that experience, Linux is based on the same, um, structure. And so what we'll do is we'll just, we'll pick a, um, Linux distribution and we'll put it on your computer. And so I went to college with, um, an, an Ubuntu laptop, um, and I felt, I felt ca- it made me feel capable. Um, and like, even the, even though the thing that made me feel capable was like, was running into issues because I remember I'd be sitting in class and like everybody else would have um, some program running that we were writing papers on. And I would be trying to get the the um, Linux equivalent to work on my computer, but like I would be running into some issue, it would be crashing. And so I'd be Googling things, I'd be opening the terminal and just copying and pasting things in there. And somebody would walk up behind me and go, oh, I didn't know you code. And I'd be like, I don't, I just can't get this stupid program to work. And like, it works super easily on a Windows computer or on a MacBook, but because I'm on a Linux, I have to do all this troubleshooting. Um, And like that, that sort of like gave me a self, um, sort of a self image of like being capable, being able to figure things out that were technical. Um, And I think that that is now why I'm in a space where there that is male dominated, but um, quickly shifting as things are getting more mainstream and, Um, I hope that it starts to change a lot more. 
Awesome. Okay, so like we were talking about like the Mount Cox stuff and how that went down, and you were talking earlier about um, the Russian exchange BTCE. Um, how did you find that exchange? Like, why didn't you just find Coinbase at that time? Coinbase was already live. Like, what was going on? Uh, I don't think Coinbase existed at the time. Um, oh, okay. So I remember. Uh, I, can, I, I created uh, a Coinbase account like as, almost as soon as it went live. Um, but I'm I'm actually I'm gonna log into my old email right now and see if I can figure out when I created the BTCE account versus when I created the Coinbase account uh, because I'm pretty sure um, BTCE uh, May 2013 is when I created um, the BTCE account. And I created the Coinbase account in oh, lots of scrolling in November of 2013. All oh, right. Okay. So after you got rugged, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. so. Uh, yeah. And I think like sketchy exchanges like that were listing a lot more. Um, mm. at when, when I first made an account with Coinbase, all they were selling was Bitcoin. Um, they, it took them a while to list Ethereum as well. And like, if you if I look through my email, I if I look through the Coinbase emails, I got one email that says Ethereum is now trading on Coinbase, and like ten minutes later, there's another email that says you just bought Ethereum. Nice, that's really exciting. But of course, then the the thing that people say is like I never bought enough, right? Because I, I don't know if that was the case for you, but I think almost everyone they say I didn't buy enough. So how how? Why did you buy Ethereum when as soon as it listed? Like, what what were you thinking? Um, well, I I don't feel like I bought enough in terms of like I bought what I could. I bought. I literally <laughs> would spend all my money on cryptocurrency, and I I did not have that much money. Um, and so like, it's funny because any money that I have right now in cryptocurrency, I all of my peers, all every all of the people who graduated with me, like. People still live paycheck to paycheck um, who graduated in chemistry. Like they, it, mm. it's especially people who went to grad school or people who work um, some technician job. A lot of them still live paycheck to paycheck, especially if they live in a big urban city that has um, what do they call it? Um, there's a there's a tax. I forget what it's called. It's like something tax when you live in a very desirable place um the employers chart basically like pay you less and and it's colloquially known as a tax because they know you want to live there and so they know you'll take a pay cut to live there um mm. and so i uh have sort of always considered everything that i have in crypto just like completely separate i have never pulled any significant amount out of crypto um because I, I felt like I had cheated the system. I was like, I'm not supposed to have any money right now. Like this, this mm. is not the class that I'm in. I don't know how I got here. Um, uh, yeah. So going into like, I guess that was like, you know, the 2015, 2016 period. Um, who were you talking to in your life about crypto? Like, did you tell people that you had crypto? Like what, how did they see that part of you? Um, I, oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I, 
my family knew that I was 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 like into crypto, and so they would like talk to me about crypto when they would see it in the news. And like my dad and my mom both would send me money on Venmo and be like, "Hey, can you buy some? Can you buy like fifty dollars of Bitcoin for me or whatever?" Um, and I did that for a while, uh, but I don't. I don't remember having any friends who were into it. I went to a um a Bitcoin meetup one time. It I was like I just I wanted friends to talk to because my parents were into it but they were like cool weird thing that you're into. Um and uh I didn't like all of the friends that I had were not technical people. Um like my best friends were not were not remotely interested in Ubuntu, Linux, open source stuff like None of this stuff is stuff that they liked. Um, and so I went to a Bitcoin meetup and I just remember being so disappointed um, because I went there and like it was sort of just entrepreneurs and like people who had dressed up to go to this Bitcoin meetup. And they were like, what are you going to um, like? They were all trying to get rich. They were all like trying to find the alpha and trying to get rich. And I wanted something more um like in depth in that I wanted something more substantial and um so I never went to another bitcoin meetup <laughs> um and I just uh yeah I never I never really sought out a community I, until um post covid when uh when it when the bull market started and I went and looked for the eth finance um subreddit and that was like really my first foray into an actual community. That's so cool. Okay, so like in real life, communities were kind of disappointing, but you were saying that you found ETH Trader, which was a, you know, a great community of people who were sharing like a daily, they had a daily thread and people would share ideas about Ethereum and like their excitement and um, all that kind of stuff. So I guess that was like 2016, I guess, 2017 for you when... When, when did you yeah, find 2017 is when I was like hmm. lurking in eTrader. I think I maybe made like five to 10 posts in there, hmm. but it wasn't till 2020 that I actually like started engaging um, yeah. in an unhealthy, addictive way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's actually like focus on that period a little bit because you said, you know, the ICO boom happened 2017, the bull market. And then you said when 2018 came, you kind of left crypto. So what happened in that that period in that bull market that kind of made you walk away from everything after being so enthusiastic and so like immersed in in things uh i started grad school <laughs> i started a grad school and um the like it, it kind of coincided with um with the bear market starting and so <laughs> um i it was a perfect time for me to lose interest i was getting really into um the field that i was in and grad school takes up a lot of your time. We, did you sell anything in 2017? Nope. I held on to all of it. What were you holding at that time? Just Ethereum. Um, I, okay. I didn't have Bitcoin anymore at that point. I Well, actually, so I actually, I did go on to um, Poloniex at some point in 2016. And I took like, I think I took like $10 and threw it at everything that was being sold on Poloniex, which was like, I think there were like 30 coins on there. So I think I spent like $300 just buying like $10 of everything. Um, and I put it in a wallet. I wrote the seed phrase down on a little post-it note. No label, no explanation. I just wrote it on a post-it note and put it away. 
And so um, in 20, when did, when did Elon go on SNL? Oh, that was 2021, November 2021. 2021. Yeah. So in 2021, I was like, I know that I have Dogecoin somewhere because it was listed on Poloniex at the time and I've never been able to find it and I've considered it a lost cause and then Elon was going to go on SNL and I was like, if there's ever a time to figure out how much Dogecoin I have and sell it, now is the time. So I tore apart my room and I I actually always knew that I had this little seed phrase on a post-it note, but for some reason, like it didn't occur to me that that was, it was there, it was that. And I had created some random wallet on, um, do you remember the wallet Coinomy something? It was like Coinomy or something. Uh, but I had used that. And so I finally found it. And whatever I bought on Poloniex, I, I think it was like 10 or $20. At that point, it was $8,000. So I was like, sell. And I texted my sister because my sister was also, um, she had bought some Dogecoin in 2020. And I texted her before Elon went on. I was like, sell your Dogecoin. And she was like, no way. Like Elon's going on um, on SNL. Like this is going to go. And of course, like it tanked afterwards. And my yeah. sister was like, well, I guess I'll just hold on to it. And I was like, You're, it's past. <laughs> the time is yeah, that past. Was that, that was the peak. That was the nice trade, right? Like $10 into $8,000. Like that's. It was, it, it was wild. Yeah. <laughs> I could not believe. I was like, I know I have this. And like, that's so much money. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. So what did you do with it? Um, I traded it for ETH. <laughs> of course, what else? That you got you got a nice two ETH for ten dollars there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, right yeah, at the top I, four thousand dollars somewhere around there. So not okay. bad. Yeah. Okay, so um when you when you went to grad school twenty eighteen, um you just didn't think about crypto at all in that time? Like you were still holding Ethereum and you just left it on, on the wallet basically and that was it? Yeah, so I had I I had bought a ledger um in mm. uh like 2017 2018 whenever mm. um uh yeah, I I bought a ledger and I put it on there and I just left it. Um and uh I think having the hardware wallet was sort of like a um a barrier that kept me from selling it because I was like, Oh, I don't remember how that thing works. I don't remember where my seed phrase is. I don't remember how to turn it on. I have to find a pin somewhere. And so I was like, uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, and, uh, I remember somebody asking me one at some point, like Ethereum was pumping and I remember being like, Oh, I have some of that. And somebody was like, Oh, you should sell it now. And I was like, Meh. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I, and when I actually, I got freaked out because, um, I remember I was, um, texting with a friend one time and I was trying to figure out my ledger at the same time, or I was on the phone with them and I was trying to figure out my ledger and I tried a, a wrong pin three times and it erased mm -hmm. the ledger. Um, and I was like, hold on. I think I just lost, a I, I gotta go. I think I just lost a lot of money. <laughs> and, like I still had the seed phrase. And so I was like, yeah. Did I? No, I don't remember how this thing works. <laughs> That's um, great. So then you you finished grad school. Did you go and get like a a normie job? Like, is that is that what your plan was? Like, and that was yeah, that so was the path you were on. I graduated. I got hired um, in the field that I graduated in. Hmm. Um, I worked for a little while. Um, the job that I worked was um, considered 
the the salary that I made at the job that I worked was a low income. Um, it was officially considered low income in the um, in the city that I lived in, and there was a point where so COVID COVID was affecting my salary. Um, <laughs> part of the job that I was working um, depended on these uh, weeks or months that we would work um, like really really long hours, like eighty four hours a week, um, and we would make a significant portion of our salary during that time. Um, but because, um, I worked for, a really, a, a program that was, um, associated with the federal government and the state government, and there were all sorts of like bureaucratic regulations about what we could do. And like, they couldn't agree on protocol, COVID protocols. And so, um, I ended up losing like 10 to 20% of my salary and I had to move out of the house that I had lived in for five years, um, and when I was looking for new housing, I was like, I don't think I can afford to live in this city. Um, and I was looking up like maybe like rent um, assistant programs and um, realized that I qualified for a thing called Section 8 housing. And I was like, oh, holy shit, I have an undergraduate degree. I have a master's. I have a 401. I have a pension. I like I have a good career. And I still qualify for Section 8 housing. I should not work. <laughs> so um, the job that I worked at the time um, ran its own proprietary software. And it like desperately needed updating. It was it was running in Visual Basic, which um, like the guy who wrote that um, software wrote it in the 90s. And um, when we needed when we needed anything with it, we would still contact him, which was hilarious because he was like in his late eighties and he would come and help us with the software. And like, it only worked on windows seven, windows seven computers, which um, technically were not allowed to be plugged into our work network. And so like, whenever we would plug that laptop in, somebody from it would call us and be like, what did you just plug in? Like unplug whatever you did. Like that's a security risk to the network. And we'd be like, but we have software that only runs on windows seven. Um, and so I told my boss, I was like, you know what, I bet I could take a Python course and, um, translate this software from visual basic to Python. Um, I would need to go to a coding bootcamp. Um, I found like a coding bootcamp, uh, and I wrote him a little proposal and I said, this is what it's going to cost. I'm actually willing to fund part of this. But what would happen is I would get out and we would hire me as a programmer because we need a programmer. And for some reason, you won't hire a programmer. And like, for some reason, I mean, programmers are too expensive and our program yeah. didn't, have, didn't have that much money. Hmm. Um, and so I was like, I will do it for like a marginal increase in, in salary. And he looked at the proposal and said, no, like you can take one. Python class. And I was like, you think one Python class is going to get you translated software? Um, and so I looked at the proposal and I was like, you know what? I quit. I'm going to this this coding bootcamp. I will figure it out. I got a, I um, applied for a credit card. I put the whole coding bootcamp on a credit card. Um, and then I started being loud in e-finance and I was like, I just quit my job. I'm taking a coding bootcamp. I'm going to keep you guys all updated on my progress. Um, and I was like super, I was, I was getting super into Ethereum at this point. I had spent like the last, um, probably six months 
posting in ETH Finance every single day, like really getting into um, into ETH Staker and Ethereum in general. Um, and so when I started this coding bootcamp, like everybody has to do a uh, like a midterm project um, mm-hmm. and build something. And everybody was sort of like, what should I build? Um, I don't know. I guess I'll build like a store that sells this. And like everybody's sort of um, like a little bit aimless. And when I started this coding bootcamp, I was like, I want to build um, a blockchain, uh, like a something that queries the blockchain. And I remember my coding, my bootcamp instructor was like, enjoy doing that. I can't help you with that. And so I was like <laughs> writing just this really awful code. Um, and I, I did make a functional, something that functionally queried the blockchain, but like it had all sorts of bugs. Um, and uh, at that point, um, somebody from Eastacre was starting a company, uh, Gitpo app. And uh, Colfax, who was starting the company, reached out and was like, I see you need a job. <laughs> you seem very competent. Would you like to come work for me at GitPoap? Um, and then I worked for GitPoap, but um, eventually GitPoap, um, uh, it ended up opening, open sourcing it, um, the, the product and um, closing the company because it, it couldn't really develop like any sensible um, revenue uh, source. And so yeah. um, at that point, when I, uh, left Gitpo app, I basically proposed to the rest of Eastacre. I was like, you know what? I've been spending a lot of my time here anyway. I think that we could make Eastacre like a, a real thing. Um, and so I, I would really like to be full time at Eastacre. And everybody sort of voted and was like, cool, that sounds good. <laughs> so wait, let, let's take a couple of steps back. So um, when the COVID was happening and you got back into Ethereum, right? And like you kept seeing the 32 number everywhere you were saying earlier. And then you found out that was about staking. Um, what, what, what was going on on that side, like the Ethereum side, like what was happening in ETH finance at the time? What kind of things were people talking about? So I just remember, um, Superfizz was posting a lot about um, like he was cr- kind of cross posting things from eStaker into e finance and like getting me more and more interested. And this idea of like, I, I at that point have had um, Ethereum just sitting in a wallet for like four years doing nothing. Um, of course, like it's, it's um, got price appreci- appreciation, but I, I want to do something with it. I want, I want it to work for me. I want, I've been, looking at like other blockchains that have like the staking staking function, but you don't really have custody of it because there's delegated proof of stake. And like, it's kind of clearly just a, a, a way for you to like put your money back in wherever they're like, it's, it, it didn't seem as, um, as functional and productive as um, the Ethereum staking um, consensus mechanism did. And it didn't seem as robust. Like there was very little talk of building building. And when Ethereum staking came on, like there was so much community excitement. And um, there was like the the um, launch of the beacon chain where people were like, I don't know if we're going to get enough people um, staking to be able to make this function. Because there was some threshold that, you, that they had to meet to be able to yeah. um, 
to launch the beacon chain. And not only did they mean it, they like far exceeded it. And so there was just like, there was so much community excitement and so much um, builder energy going into it that it really like sucked me in. And I was like, this is, this is a, whatever this is, is like a cool thing going on and I want to be involved. Yeah. I, I remember having the same kind of experience at that time, right? Like I was in ETH finance every day and I was getting all this energy about staking and I had ETH just sat there doing nothing as well. And it's like, okay, I'm going to do this. So Fizz, Fizz was like so enthusiastic about it and so passionate. I was totally infectious. And he had like this Discord group thing set up where he was going to put like, you know, people who are comfortable with staking in touch with people who are novices with staking and kind of get them talking to each other to kind of help them out, like setting up these little pods. So I joined one of these pods. And I was like, yes, I'm going to go stake. And then the guy's like, yeah, come on. And I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. This is all like jargon. More power to you. Like, good luck. But um, you guys go do that. And I'm going to just sit here and just like, just enjoy talking about staking, but not actually doing it. So um, I totally understand how that was. You know, that, that period was really positive and really exciting. And um, we all kind of got caught up in it. Like, and, and rightly so, right? It was really good fun. Um, so why didn't you stake right away? Like what was going on at Beacon Chain launch? I mean, it was a lot of money. It was, mm. it was a lot of money. It was money that I hadn't touched. Um, and like it, it already what felt like fake money to me. It like mm. felt like that's crypto money. That's not real. That could disappear at any point. I've never like turned that into real money. I'm hoping that it becomes something. Um, and so the idea of moving it was terrifying to me because it was like this, this beacon of hope that like maybe I wouldn't be poor for the, my whole life. And I just like, I didn't want to, to screw it up. I was so afraid that if I moved it, I was immediately gonna lose it. And so yeah. I was doing a bunch of research and asking a bunch of questions, but like just that that idea of just moving it took me so long to do. I think even now, like I, I always do test transactions. And I think before, the first time I moved it from that ledger, I think I did like four test transactions, like to make sure it went there, to make sure I could control that wallet to send it back. Like maybe I didn't send enough. Maybe or like the approval wasn't enough and maybe I should like try with a different approval. <laughs> I was like very paranoid that I was going to lose my one little beacon of hope. <laughs> yeah. But then it, it, of course you haven't lost it, right? Like it's still your beacon of hope that's pumping out money every day now, well, every five to seven days, whatever the skimming is now, now which is now which pretty cool. Of hope on the beacon chain. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. So um, tell me, okay, so then you, of course, you know, you're still in the ETH finance community. You were in ETH staker community. Uh, once you actually became a staker, how did like your approach to those communities change? Um, well, I got pulled a lot further into the ETH staker community. Um, I, how did it change? Um, I, I, so I actually, so w when I was, uh, before I was staking, um, when I was just sort of getting into things, I, uh, was way more into the ETH finance community, especially because it was all my hobby time. Like my, my work was, um, a nine to five job most weeks. Um, and so I would do that during the day and then I would come home and like Ethereum was my hobby time. Like that's what I would do. Um, 
But since I have been like full time for for Eastacre, for example, I have been spending so much less time in ETH finance. And that's mostly because working in um, Ethereum is so distracting. It is so hard to get anything done because a lot of my job now is on Discord. And Discord is a social media app. And so I will start doing something and then I'll notice I have like a ping in a different server and I'll go check it. And then I'll get distracted and start doing something. And like two hours later, I'm like, wait, what was I? Oh, I forgot this task that I was doing. And so like, there's no, I'm jealous of people who say like, oh yeah, when I, when I want to work, I like log out of my social media. And I'm like, I can't, (laughs) I can't do that. I have to be in discord to do my work. Um, And it kind of sucks, but, um, but it, it does mean that I end up spending less time in places like ETH finance because my social and work lives are so intertwined now um, that I like sort of get overwhelmed being in there. And I don't need like more social crypto time because I have so much social crypto time within my work, within my job. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Um, it's really funny because when I stopped working and when I you know, moved away from a nine to five into working on rocket fuel full time, pretty much um it was very much, a, you know, I want to leave behind a nine to five. I want to do this other thing. And my wife was really encouraging about that. And then recently we've been kind of joking that, you know, I left a nine to five and joined a 24 <laughs> seven. And like, it's just kind of, <laughs> yeah. Take, yeah, it's like kind of takes over your whole life. Do you know what I mean? And like, cause there's always something going on. Like my work is almost all in discord too. And I, it's just, it's, it's, I totally know what you mean when it, when you say that, you know, it gets consuming and. Somebody asked of, me, um, Sorry, you said somebody Uh, asked you. Sorry, somebody asked me recently. uh, We were trying to schedule something and they were like, I'm on Singapore time. What is what's your schedule like? And I just answered, well, I'm I'm on UTC minus three and I have no personal boundaries. So just not before 9 a.m. And (laughs) I I like 2 a.m. is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can make it work, right? Like, I think I've done calls with people that like, 5 a.m. Eastern time because they were in Europe and that's the only time we could get it to work. So I totally know, I totally know what you mean. Okay. Let's, let's, let's go back again a little bit. Um, so you went to EatStaker and you're like, Hey, I want to work for EatStaker. Like what was the structure at EatStaker at the time? Like what was EatStaker doing that like there was something there for you to kind of like pitch yourself for? So EastAker was for a very long time, just a loose organization of people. There was, it was mm-hmm. a, um, it was an unorganized entity, um, just a bunch of people who uh, either didn't have to work anymore or people who worked other full-time jobs. Um, and just like their other full-time job was tangential to staking or directly involved in staking. And um, eStaker sort of gave them a way to um, work on the the more like philosophical, like side of decentralization rather than like Buddha works for beacon chain, which beacon chain is an amazing um, company. And um, I think that he like works a lot on that product. And eStaker is sort of a place where he can come and like shoot the shit with his friends and be a little bit more opinionated, um, like out outwardly publicly opinionated. Um, and it's just, it's a, 
place where very like-minded friends who care about staking are hanging out and talking about how to make staking and decentralization of staking better. Um, but at some point I was like, Hey, let's like, what's the shock? What's the, what's the legal structure here? And I remember everybody being like, you want to take care of that? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. Um, and so, uh, part of the work I've done over the last year was, uh, was forming eStaker as a nonprofit entity. Um, and so we're officially a nonprofit now. Um, but that comes with all sorts of like legal implications and tax implications. And like, I didn't go to business school. I've never started a business before. And so like the, the learning curve on doing all of this has been awful. Like learning, learning, I didn't even really know the difference between like when you need a CPA, when, when you need an accountant versus when you need a lawyer. Um, and so like even that, like I've been reaching out to people who want to help and they're like trying to help. And then at some point I'm like, are you not the appropriate person to be talking to? And they'll be like, oh yeah, you need, you need this person. Why didn't you tell me that earlier? <laughs> you just say, like, you know what you're doing. Um, and so the, the, most of the work that I have done, a lot of the work that I have done um, in the last year has been like me learning how to deal with bureaucratic stuff that I absolutely hope that I get on autopilot and never have to deal with again. <laughs> yeah, that's that totally makes sense. I totally understand what you're saying there. Um, when you when you joined Eat Staker, how were those early days of like trying to like make a ship? Uh, like before you could even write it, right? Like it was, you know, there's this idea of there's being a ship and you're like trying to come on board and fix it and like put it in a certain direction, but you were kind of starting things from scratch in some ways. Like what were your, what were your ideas at the time? Like what was going through your mind there? Sorry, rephrase the question real quick. You cut out for one okay. second. Like, yeah. When, when you started like working with Eat Staker, like what were your motivations in those early days? Like what were your goals? What were your uh, driving um, motivations? Okay. Um, yeah. I just like, I was, I was honestly addicted to, um, to the idea of staking at the time. Um, hmm. I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to learn more. And like this being with Eat Staker was a way that I could, um, I could sort of fulfill that, that curiosity. And I have found in my life when I am super into something, I have to feed it because there are so few times in life that you get passionate about something that like, you really have to dive deep into, you have to lean hard into like when you're passionate about something. Cause those, those aren't controllable. You can't like control if you really, really love something. Um, and so if you don't feed that passion, it couldn't, it can very easily go away. Um, and so eStaker was a way for me to, um, feed that. But at the same time, like I, the way that I live my life, the way that I care, the things that I care about are like, I think exhausting to some of the people that I know, like, um, I, I hate monopolies and I try my best not to like order from Amazon. I try my best to find like little um, boutique cafes and, and like little boutique shops to, to go to instead of Target or Walmart or whatever. And like, I, and I know at least my mom gets so exhausted with me and she's like, can you not just make your life easy? Why do you have to make life so hard? And like, 
I have leaned further and further into that as I get older. Um, and East, the rest of East Acre jokes with me um, because they say that every time, like, I'm going to go in a million different directions here. It, it's also sort of the reason why um, I like the um, pseudonymous culture. Um, the, it's the the whole reason I like the pseudonymous culture uh, or like I engage in the pseudonymous culture is because I like that it exists. I like that it's an option and I want that to continue being an option for people who come in staking and or in, in Ethereum in the crypto ecosystem. Um, and the more that I do it, the more like it makes way for other people to do it and it makes it more normal to have privacy. Um, and there's a joke in eStaker that every time uh, my privacy practices uh, make life hard for me, I have to do 10 push-ups. <laughs> so every time like something happens and I'm like, oh, I can't do that because blah, 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 blah. Um, they just like do a little push, a little like working out guy emoji uh, at me. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I don't know. I, th I think that it's really, it gives me a lot of fulfillment to try to live my life in a way that, um, that supports the things in our world that aren't exploiting people like monopolies or, um, things that has, that sell our data. Um, and I, I, feel really proud of myself when I'm able to like make the tiniest little difference, even if I sometimes have to shop at Amazon or Walmart or whatever. Um, if I can just like to change tiny little things about my life to um, make sure that Facebook isn't getting my data for free, that um, that I'm not participating in the system that they have created that makes it really difficult not to participate in that system. Um, and so I think that, uh, I forgot how I got here. I forgot how I got on this topic. <laughs> we were talking about like things that you were passionate about, and, like the, your motivations in those early days of Eastaker. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Eastaker Eastaker makes me feel like I can work on that full time. Like um, I want Ethereum to grow up as technology that um, empowers me to live that way. That empowers me to feel like I have control of my own data. Like I'm not giving all my data to some gigantic organization that's making me pay for their service and selling all my data at the same time. Um, because the, I don't know what they're doing with my data. I don't know what my account is. They can lock me out at any point. Um, and so working on a system that, um, that sort of gives more, gives consumers more power is something that I find very, very fulfill fulfilling and like working on the base layer of that, working um, at the consensus layer and like making sure that that, like the fundamental um, way that Ethereum works is supporting that ethos. Um, that's, that feels really meaningful to me. Yeah, absolutely. I totally can, I can see that. Um, one thing that, I want to talk about, and I don't know how far deep into this you want to go, but earlier on you kind of mentioned about, you know, um, this idea of Ethereum promoting fairness and economic fairness and economic justice. Um, and now you're kind of talking about like this stance of there being monopolies and how, you know, you don't want to engage with those uh, big companies uh, and things like that. Um, how do you think like Ethereum and crypto kind of ties in with your political stance? Because uh, you kind of hinted at that a little bit. So do you want to dig into that a little bit and kind of explain how the two fit together? Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, so I, I get really, 
I go really hard on whatever my current thing is. Um, and my current thing is I'm reading, I'm reading this amazing, I just read this amazing book called The Master Switch. It's by Tim Wu, who is a professor at Columbia Law. Um, and he was um, on like, uh, Obama's anti-monopoly. Um, he was in the administration, like working on antitrust stuff. Um, and I'm reading another book of his right now called the curse of bigness. And, um, I love it. It's making me feel like even angrier at, um, at big corporations right now. Um, but it's also, it's sort of informing a lot of what I'm seeing. And I love that it's informing that because it's sort of talking about how, um, how monopolies are a cycle and how antitrust um, support for antitrust enforcement is a cycle and how um, like the little sneaky ways that big corporations um, get people to support their, um, their monopolies over industries, over like their vertical monopolies over um, several industries uh contribute to wealth disparity and this wealth disparity makes people feel generally uneasy. And, um, when they feel generally uneasy, a lot of people aren't able to like point to one specific thing, because first of all, like the paradigm that they live in is something that seems like it's always been there. Um, and so like people who live in this sort of, in this time that is post Reagan, post Nixon, um, that really like de devalued antitrust's enf enforcement's um, ability to to operate. They think that this just is how antitrust works. This is how capitalism works. This is okay. That like competition is rampant, and like that those are not the case. I I think capitalism can be great in a regulated way, and we are not regulating it, and we're um, sort of evading any of the antitrust laws that should be applying here. Um, and uh, I just, I lost my train of thought again. <laughs> That's okay. Um, let me ask a slightly different question. So, you know, you said you were reading like this antitrust law and like trying to um, think of ways to grow, get away from monopolies and like data capturing and all this kind of stuff. Um, in the US, I feel like the political landscape is so bleak right now for people who have those kind of values because neither of the major political parties kind of represent us. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, um, how do you how do you deal with that? Like, you know, the Republican Party has vast issues. The um, Democratic Party so has other issues. You're frozen right now and you cut out for... Am I back? You cut out for yeah, a lot no. of that, but... Um... Okay. I was saying, like, how what, do you, like, both parties, like, neither of the parties really, like, represent those values. So how does that kind of fit in with your, with your, the way that you see, like, politics and crypto? Yeah, it, I mean, I, I'm, like, super um, disheartened by the way politics have um, progressed. And the, I, I think the, the way, the direction that I was going in was, like, the all the wealth disparity that all of this has created um, has led to a rise in populism, um, and populism often leads to fascism. Um, and 
I really hope that 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 things don't need to get worse before they get better. But it is seeming like populism is rising throughout the entire globe. Like the, the it's not just the U.S. Argentina is going more towards populism. Brazil has been populist for a long time. Italy has been flirting with populism for at least a decade. Um, and so I think that like the the sort of influence that American culture, that Western culture has on the rest of the world is really tainting it so much more right now because um, our world is so global and because our social media plays such a huge part in people's um, understanding of the world. And right now, social media is just like this terrible, awful thing that that um, like really makes people very hostile towards each other and makes people feel a lot of hate and um, amplifies everything in humans that is just really terrible. Like even, even crypto Twitter is just such a gross place. It's such a, um, it makes people, it makes people really dehumanize each other um, and really get into like sort of a war mindset where they don't care about anything but winning and taking someone down and like humans humans are built for war we are built to lose our humanity we are built to dehumanize people and want to take them down and like lo completely lose our empathy when it when we get into that mentality and social media in my i'm not even going to say in my opinion as a fact, social media is amplifying all those worst traits of us. And yep. um, I I really hope that um, things don't have to get much worse before they get better. I don't, I honestly don't have that much hope for what's going on because I mean, right now we're voting between Trump and Biden. Like, like what? <laughs> no. I certainly didn't make any of these choices like the 2016 yeah. election, the 20, um, the like none of none of the last three elections are elections that I felt like it mattered um, what we wanted. It was just up to these parties that are, have been in charge for way too long. Um, I am super jealous of Europe, the way that they have a ranked choice voting system. Um, I would love that. I would kill for it. I think that um, a lot of the things that the EU is doing, uh, makes me want to move to the EU and renounce my American citizenship. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I would never actually renounce my American citizenship because they make expatriating really difficult, um, yeah. and on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I, like, I, I would love to be under EU protections. Um, I have been thinking about like, as a, as a digital nomad right now, I have been thinking about like places that I do want to settle down because I do, I do miss having like a closet, like stuff w somewhere where I can keep a winter coat and, um, like going from winter to summer because I'm in Argentina right now, um, has been such a gigantic pain. Uh, because I have to have like a winter coat, which takes up half my suitcase. And um, then I have to have like summer clothes. And what am I going to do with that in the winter? Um, so I would like to have a place like that is at least a home base. Yeah. And um, right now on the table is Argentina. I really love Argentina. There's a sh there's a, a lot of crypto adoption here. It's insane. I've never been able to be somewhere where when somebody asks me, oh, what do you do for a living? And I say crypto, they're like, oh, cool. 
like they see the value in it. I was sitting with an American in Argentine one time and the American asked me, what do you do? And I said, I work in crypto. And he said, isn't that a scam? And the Argentine chimed in before I was able to answer and said, you think that because you've never needed it. And I was like, I love that answer. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, uh, but, but like this, this country's in shambles right now. It's, it's, um, experiencing a lot of hyperinflation. I think the number is like 40 to 50% of people are in poverty here right now. And so like, yes, I'm in the touristy area. And so like, I see a great side of, of Argentina. Um, but for the majority of Argentines, that's not this, this is not their, um, their reality. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm basically just like capitalizing on a really privileged life that I'm able to live here because Hmm the wealth disparity here is so bad that um, that if you have American wealth and you come here, you're able to like live very well. Um, and I, that feels a little exploitative of me. Um, and so I would like, I, I really like Argentina. Um, I'm thinking about staying here for a while, but I, another option for me is I would love to go to Spain. Um, Spain seems like a really cool place that it could be uh, to settle down. And they just enabled they just enacted a digital nomad visa. And so I could go and stay there for a while on that. Yeah. That's cool. I'm glad that you have options that are not coming back to the US. Yeah. Like I moved yeah, here like, a few years years ago and it's like, uh, it's not, it's not fun. So yeah, I totally get yeah, what you're saying. I'm, I'm lucky to be in a position where like, I don't, I don't have kids. Um, and mm-hmm. so I have that option, but if, if you have kids, it is so much harder to make any decisions yeah. about where you're going or like make a decision to go somewhere. You can't be winging it like I, like I am. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's, uh, let's actually pull on the thread that you mentioned earlier. So a little while ago, you talked about how you went to a Bitcoin gathering and it was a bit of a disaster because you just didn't mesh with the people who were there. Um, when did you go to your first Ethereum meeting and how was that different? So the last thing I heard was um, you saying I didn't mesh with the people and then you froze. So maybe yeah, start so from there. You, yeah, so you went to a Bitcoin meeting and you didn't mesh with the people who were there. Um, how, when would you go to an Ethereum meeting for the first time and how was that different for you? Oh, um, okay. So the first time that I met anybody was, was the... Um, was it was the ETH Finance HodlerCon? Um, okay, in Hawaii. Yeah. yeah, in Hawaii, and I was nice. I I loved it. I was so stoked to meet people in person. And at that point, like ETH Finance, still ninety ninety nine percent of people in there are pseudonymous and like don't even have profile pictures. And you half the time don't even like look at the username of the person who's posting, which I love. Um, because it's always it's like more often the quality of the comment than the reputation of the person posting. Um, and so that was so much fun. We like were actually able to talk Ethereum. It was the first time that I was able to sort of nerd out in person. We did karaoke, we drank a lot, we sat by the pool. Um, and then the next thing I went to was um Fizz offered me, he had been asked to speak at EY in New York. And he couldn't go. And so he was asking other people at Eastacre 
um, and asked me, do you want to go give this talk? And I was like, I remember saying, I am, I, I called my friends and I said, I am terrified to say yes to this. And I am terrified to say no to this because it is an amazing opportunity. I will basically go to like, UI, UI is a cool company. It's one of the big four. It's like, it's the only, it's one of the only, uh, it's one of the big four accounting firms. It's one of the mm -hmm. only big financial like companies that really does a good job of straddling both sides. Like Paul Brody is so cool that he has single-handedly created and brought this um, blockchain uh, entity of EYs into like a very community first uh, feeling like they, I, I cannot say enough about how cool Paul Brody is. Like if you ever get the chance to meet that guy, I don't know if you have met him, but he's just the coolest. He's the coolest financial person that I know. Yeah. I I met him at East, East Denver last year, which is when I met you too. So yeah, I, oh, met, yeah. I met loads of cool. Yeah. I, I met loads of cool. Walked out of the uh, the Daily Gray meetup, and yeah. you are so tall. You're so much taller than I expected. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people and say that about me. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, don't remind me. I was exactly yes, because yeah, the Buffy call on the onesie. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that was that um, was fun. So but, in my head, you actually always in that onesie now. Yeah, of course. I'm wearing it right now under my under my jumper. You know, like I sleep in it. I I work out in it. Thank you. I'm, Thank I'm, you I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting a new one this year, just so I can get it another fresh one. But um, how was how was East Denver? Like, how was that as a as a place to go and visit? Um, so last, last East Denver was my first East Denver. Um, <laughs> I had been supposed to go, I was supposed to go to the last two, but, um, this was the first time that I've ever actually been able to make it. And, um, all of East Acre went and we did, a we did a staking happy hour and it went so well. I was so happy with it. Um, like all of the right people showed up. We got a lot of homestakers there. We got a lot of like people who really care about what they're doing, not people who are just trying to like shill their protocol or whatever. Um, we didn't do it again this year, a because like mostly because not all of East Acre is going. I'm the only person from East Acre actually going to eat Denver this year, um, but also because the people who were reaching out to us about like, oh, is East Acre doing anything at East Denver this year? Where people I was like, you heard about how cool this was and you want to meet all these people and you want to show your protocol. And like, that's exactly the kind of um, event that I don't want to put on. Yeah. Um, and so that was amazing. But um, East Denver was absolutely a COVID super spreader event. And um, I, I already don't like um, like loud, crowded spaces. I'm not a person. I don't like clubs. I don't like loud bars. Um, and so going to East Denver at the sport castle was exhausting because it's just this gigantic warehouse and the, the talks are in the middle of the, um, like the exposition spaces Rodeo. and Rodeo you can barely, yeah, <laughs> um, you can like barely hear what's going on. And so like, there's so much noise happening around you that I'd be like trying to listen to a speaker and I'd be like, I, this is tiring. Um, but also I had COVID and I didn't know that I had COVID yet. And so I was 
really tired. Um, and at some point I got asked to be on a panel and I just remember I went, I said yes to the panel and then I went straight to the beanbag area and I set my alarm for half an hour before the panel. I went and slept on the beanbags. I went and did the panel and then I went straight back to the beanbags. <laughs> and yeah, that sounds uh, like I, a great Ethan experience. Wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Overwhelming. <laughs> exhausting. Yeah. Um, let's let's um, change topic a little bit and talk a little bit about like some of the things that Eat Steak is doing now. So, um, you know, um, there's big, huge push in this last month with uh, Bisu um, uh, bug and then the Nethermind bug. And Eat Steak has been kind of banging the drum about client diversity since the very beginning of the Beacon Chain launch first with, you know, the Prism supermajority and now after that, you know, with the get supermajority. So how has that period been um, for you kind of like getting the word out and, and trying to like bang your head against the wall, pretty much trying to tell people just like, you know, the sky is falling, but nobody kind of believing what you're saying. How, how has that been for you? Um, so I, I am so excited that these, I'm actually really excited that these bugs happened. So um, we published a paper, um, like a blog post, a I say paper loosely. We published a blog post um, last year talking about how minority clients, at least uh, Besu and Nethermind, were ready for um, professional node operators to adopt these clients. Um, and the reason that we hadn't pushed for client diversity at the time is because there was evidence that these that these minority clients just weren't like performing as well or were having um, like more issues. And Yorick, um, who is part of Eastaker, is just he's a, a professional he's a professional node operator he operates for a couple of different um things including lido um but he is just a guru when it comes to hardware networking um like testing and so he was testing out these clients and he was running like more than 10,000 keys on minority clients and um we Eastaker had like a lot of back and forth discussion about like what the performance of that was looking at was looking like and like when it was time to start recommending um, large operators to start using Nethermind and Besu. And so we published this blog post that said like, here are the risks. This is what we want to avoid. These are the um, these are the clients that are ready for adoption. And um, there honestly wasn't like there were a lot of views on that post and a lot of questions that we got, but we started reaching out to um, professional node operators and sort of like <laughs> most of the time we would get a response that was like, cool, this sounds great. We don't really have the engineering, engineering resources for this right now. And I was like, okay, well, like, what can we do to help? Like, when are you going to have the engineering resources to change this? Do you need any explanation on these risks? Because they're quite severe. <laughs> um, and uh, it took the Basie bug for, or first the Basie bug and then the Nethermind bug for people to be like, wait, what are these risks again? And I think at that point, like we got some more views on that blog post and people were, and like I had, I had posted a couple of tweets um, a few months prior that were like, that one was a poll that said how much how much eth could my validator lose if i'm running majority a super majority client and it goes offline and like 25% of people got that answer right and 75% of, of people either got that answer wrong or just wanted to see the answer 
Um, and so we had been like poking these things. And I feel like with um, like DC investor posting that he was moving his validators, like we're finally making a little bit of progress. And I get a little bit of nervous about crypto Twitter suddenly caring about it because then you get these like super internet warriors who then start harassing people and like trying to um, shame people. And then you get like the pushback because as soon as you make this like a, um, a social media push, as soon as you turn this into like a crypto Twitter brain thing, then you get um, feelings of hostility and you get people pushing back against it. And then you get people tuning out and saying like, I'm not going to listen to the community. When I do listen to the community, it affects my mental health. And so I'm a little hesitant. I like initially provided all of this, um, extra data around like when crypto Twitter was getting into it, I was like, here are a bunch of numbers. Um, here's like the blog post that we posted. Um, here are previous tweets. And then the longer it sort of went on, I was like, I'm going to step back from this a little bit. I'm going to let this peter out. And I am going to like continue quietly trying to talk um, to whatever node operators I can and like push whatever educational resources that I can, because I don't want people to start feeling harassed. And um, like everybody wants to do good. Everybody either they care about the network um, and they just maybe don't quite understand the risk or they really care about their job and they don't quite understand the risk, but like making like harassing them is not going to make, is not going to make the inroads that you need to make for them to trust um, your opinion. And like using, using a community to bully someone is never the right answer <laughs> yeah, to get absolutely. Them to but people are doing stuff now, right? Like, um, what's what? Like, you, you, I totally get what you when you said like this has been exciting. It's been actually really exciting. Like, this is in some ways the best possible scenario that we could have had is that people got that kick that they needed. You know, we lit the fire under them, and they like oh, they suddenly realized just how big a deal this is. So, what are some of the positive um, outcomes that you've seen in the last few weeks that have like really heartened you in, in thinking that you know what we're taking good steps right now so real quick i i do want to amplify that it is actually actually the best case scenario that we could have looked at so we basically had bugs in the two biggest minority clients the mm -hmm. two clients that um are used the most like are ready for um adoption and that did two things because they were bugs in minority clients they weren't a big deal, but it did show that any client could have a bug. And it sort yeah. of created this feeling of a domino effect where it was like, mm. oh, Basu had a bug. One-off anomaly. Nethermind yeah. had a bug. Oh shit, this is dominoes. Like who is next? And is it going to be the supermajority client? Because all of a sudden people are aware of what happens if it's a supermajority client without ha actually having had to suffer through that situation. Um, but also the other thing that it did, which I think is like something that's, um, under, uh, undervalued at this point is it showed us what the actual, um, client diversity landscape looks like, because we have had such a trouble getting data on this, that we have yep. two data sets right now. And one is node client diversity and validator client diversity. And the validator client diversity isn't actually that good of a data set. It's basically just survey data. 
but it's the best we have right now. And it's more representative of what we actually care about than the better data, which is node, node diversity data that is from data that's collected um, by connecting to other nodes. Um, and uh, b because that number is representative of node diversity, um, it's more, it's like overrepresentative of either non-validating nodes, which do not matter for client diversity, um, or homestakers, because homestakers are super responsible and they're engaged and they know what they're doing and they know the risks of a uh, super majority client risk. Um, and so they are running minority clients, whereas um, the larger operators who on average run 600 validators per node aren't necessarily um, running that, but they're super overrepresented in that data because they have um, one node and 600 validators, whereas a homestaker has four validators per node. Um, yep. And so this, there was all this argument about like, well, like is survey data good? It sort of overrepresents the larger, um, the larger entities. And I, my argument was like solo stakers make up or homestakers make up 6% of the network. Let's not even talk about them. Like they do a good job. They're already responsible. Leave them alone. What we care about is the large entities. And so like this data, this survey data that's extrapolated from the um, ones who are actually answering us is a good representation. And I sort of got some pushback on that. But as soon as these nodes went offline, we did get a really good picture of um, like what Nethermind runs and what Besu runs. And so Besu immediately 4% of the network went offline. And so like we can assume that it's a, about 4% that run Besu. Um, with Nethermind, I want to say it was like 10%. It was like 10%? Yeah, 10%. Yeah, that went offline. Yeah. Um, and so we, like the overall thing is that we did see that, yes, indeed, Geth runs 85% of the network. And so we yeah. should be worried about this because even though the node diversity data is showing that they run like 47% or something, that is not what we care about. That is not like that data is almost unrelated to what we're talking mm -hmm. about. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I really want to see what the data looks like now. Do you know what I mean? Like, because it, it, I know that people have moved and there's so many like anecdotal uh, like piece of evidence of like, you know, such and such entity saying we moved like all nodes saying they moved their 30,000 plus validators to Bisu. Um, a bunch of the Lido stakers, like their node operators moved to Nethermind and Bisu as well. And that's really encouraging. And hopefully, you know, within the next few months, it could be the case that Geth is no longer a super majority client, which would be amazing. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I am planning on um working on is once once coinbase switches over which i have faith that they're they are going to do very soon um yeah once they move over like uh, uh, some some of the smaller um entities have already moved over i want to um help sonic from beacon chain um who's the one who did all that survey survey data encourage him um to do that redo the survey and see what we're at right now because mm -hmm. It'll be very cool to see the number before this, um, these bugs and the number afterwards and see, like, have that as evidence of like, look, the social layer is super effective. And like, look what the community can achieve when we all work together. 
Yeah, that's that's great. And there were some really bad takes about like why would you go into a buggy client? And those people just didn't understand what was happening at all. Like they were just so short sighted. So I'm really glad that even those people seem to have like finally understood what happened and were able to like change their position. You know, like like we said, it this really is the best case scenario uh, for Ethereum. What happened like over this month? Yeah, and I just like I I'm almost angry at the people. There were a small number of people who basically said, you know, if a supermajority client bug happens and Coinbase is on that chain on um the the new chain that ends up the non-canonical chain that ends up getting finalized, um I would rather be on that chain because it's likely that there'll be a bailout, bailout and that they will like go to that. Like we might end up moving to that chain. And the reason that makes me angry is because crypto was formed in 2009. Like Bitcoin was invented in 2009 and in the first, very first block had a message about the bank bailouts. And like, how can you not see that if you, advocate for a system that bails out moneyed entities that you are creating the same system except for worse because now our surveillance is is it's easier to surveil yeah exactly exactly there's a lot of a lot of problems with that whole line of thinking but hopefully it won't be it'll be a moot discussion in in the next few months i'm just hoping that you know um everything with denkun goes smoothly and there's no bugs that come through at that time because that's you know one of those areas one of those times where a bug is most likely like during a hard fork um and hopefully you know we can avoid that eventuality but once we get through that i think you know we'll be in a much healthier position with just coinbase binance kraken like if we just need a couple of them to make some moves and we'll be much better much better off for it um We've been talking for an hour and a half, Nick. So, and this is a Rocket Pool community podcast, and we've not actually talked about Rocket Pool even once. Um, earlier, you were mentioning uh, like communities that are really passionate and a little bit too passionate at times, and the Rocket Pool community has this reputation for kind of being zealots <laughs> on on social media and in these different places. Um, how has your work with EatStaker worked adjacent to like the work that Rocket Pool community is doing? Because I know that a lot of the aims of EatStaker overlap significantly with the aims of the Rocket Pool community. How has that been for you? And like, um, yeah, just tell me how that's been for you and we can talk about it more. So first of all, I, I hope that at some point very soon, um, some sociology program becomes aware of the Rocket Pool community and comes in to study exactly how online communities can become this fervent so quickly um, yeah. because the rocket pool community is a special place like it is insane how engaged a lot of unincentivized people are and the the amount of work that it takes to get like do you know you know how many protocols come to eastaker and they ask like oh can we have a community call and i'm like Okay, but where where's your community? Like, who is asking for a community call? Because Eastaker isn't a marketing agency. Like, we we don't just put on community calls to make you guys like to give you marketing. What we do is we take a community who's already interested and we give you guys a spotlight so that you can answer questions that the community already has. And these community these protocols would kill for a community like Rocket Pool's community, but they have no idea how to create them. I have no idea how to create them. Like. 
these things formed in a way that is super mysterious to me. And I don't understand how any of it works, but like the rocket pool community is just such a special place. And like they, so the, a lot of the people who um, go to East Acre, maybe um, like rocket pool ends up being a good place for them because the lower collateral requirement or the lower bond requirement. Um, and um, they also have like rocket pool has amazing um, community support um, like tech support. Um, and a lot of the times when, when I need help, if it's like, if it's the solo node, I'll go to Yorick, um, or Remy or someone from the East Acre. But like a lot of the times, if I just go to the Rockapool discord, they're going to be able to figure out anything that's node related. Um, yeah. and yeah. I am constantly having problems with, I'm not, I'm not actually that good of a node operator. <laughs> I'm constantly having problems and I'm just like, Hey, somebody help me figure this out. Um, and the Rockapool community is just like an amazing place where people um, have figured out how to um, reward the people who are helping um, so that not everybody had to be unincentivized to be able to come in here and do their thing. And like, if you think about it, it's it's pretty insane to like take this community of shit posters um, and a lot, it has created full time jobs for a lot of them. It has created well-paid, um, fully meaningful, fully, um, incentivized, like, uh, jobs for people who, like who sit there and shit post anyway, like they're, they're basically mm -hmm. being paid to do what they already love. <laughs> this is, this is the thing for me, right? Like, so just, just kind of like you, I made my own job where I was like, oh, we need this news channel basically for everything happening in Rocket Pool because I was struggling to keep up with it and I'm a node operator with Rocket Pool. I want to keep up with it, but there's just so much stuff happening and you know a lot of it's really good quality and there's just too much. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna provide this service to the community. And I just started doing it. I didn't ask for anyone's permission really. I didn't ask for like anything. I just did it and the community responded really well to it. I did it for a few months and then I started getting a grant for it. And now that's this is my living, right? And there's other people who were just like tweaking software and you know providing help and they got hired by the team and like Joe and Fornax are members of the community first and foremost before they became team members and there's so many things like that that has happened that are really amazing that it could only happen in crypto and can only happen in these communities of like really passionate people i know that you want to say something so go ahead i'm gonna i'm gonna turn this around on you real quick just to ask you like what is it so i think one of the most valuable things in life in general in um in every industry is getting someone to be consistently engaged and motivated because most people you can get interested in something for some short amount of time, but the most valuable thing that you could possibly have is someone who's good at something and keeps doing it. So like, what is the thing that keeps you um, creating rocket fuel every day? Like what, that, that is hugely valuable and hugely insane that you have so much to talk about every day, that you're motivated to talk about it every day. You're motivated to stay engaged and like know what's going on every day. That in itself is something that should be studied as like, oh, like <laughs> what, what, what is it that, what is it that motivates you is something that like needs to be, needs to be bottled, bottled and like sold to other people. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's my job now, right? So I get a grant from, from the GMC, which is part of like, you know, the, the community DAO of Rocket Pool. And, um, 
we have a committee. I'm on that committee, but I'm not allowed to vote for my own grant, of course. But um, I'm super engaged. I have been for a long time. And I really feel like these people are my friends, right? Like I've I've known them for, for years. And you know how you were saying earlier that you didn't really have anyone in like real life to talk to about crypto. There's very few people that I have like that. And these, like first it was ETH Finance and then it was... And it was Rocket Pool, and these people kind of became like my friends, right? And like kind of like a family almost in a, in a way. And um, some of them are really cool. I met so many of them now, you know, in real life, in person, and had all these meetings and gatherings. And um, it just it's kind of like everybody offers what they can to the community and to to their friends. And this is what I can offer. Other people can offer time and support. Other people can offer like shitposting and everything all of it has value and i'm not the funniest <laughs> yeah it's it's a cult yeah <laughs> of course that's that's it it's a cult <laughs> definitely <laughs> but it's, it's i mean that I feel... is what it is if, if like cults cults yeah. bring people in because they give people uh like a a sense Belonging. of belonging yeah yeah, yeah. And i think that rocket yeah. pool does that it gives people a sense of belonging and like there's there, i'm sure there's a spectrum of when cults are bad and when cults aren't bad and like this is on the spectrum um honestly like this this is a super productive community of people who are employing each other and not mm. making anybody drink any kool-aid um not yet eventually maybe at east denver <laughs> oh god <laughs> But no, it's 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 been like the most enriching. Like, like I've I've had a few jobs that have been really impactful, and that you know I've I've really been enriched because of them. But I feel like there was always something missing. You know what I mean? And with this one, I feel like I get all of those things, and without there being anything missing. So I'm just happy that. You know, people value it and people are so supportive. And that's a huge part of me doing it every day is I know that people depend on me or people like really like they feel like I'm their friend, even if we don't talk that much. It's like this codependency or something. I don't know what it is, but um, it's I feel like I kind of owe it to these people, if that makes sense as well. Like there's all these different layers of um, of emotional um, like a bond, right? Like a like a like a cult or like a community so it's 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 amazing it's been it's been really great and i know that you've um had similar experiences like through eat staker so it's really cool that we've we found these spaces where we can thrive in ways that we might not have done before we found these communities so i think that's really cool i don't know if you're talking about present. yeah i wait can am i back I don't know if I'm back. Am I back? No, still frozen. That's okay. Um, let me know when I'm back. Do, 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 oh, do. oh, okay. Yeah, I just I was just like, yeah, this is a family. But um, let's. Uh, yeah, it, it's pretty cool. Like I was saying that you and I both kind of found these spaces where we've been able to thrive in a way that we probably couldn't or weren't doing before and now you just kind of like hold on to that right you, you don't let go so yeah. Wack, are you are you are you public about the industry that you were in before um before you yeah i, I was a teacher i was a teacher for seven years 
Nice. What did you teach? Um, English as a foreign language, mostly. So I was, awesome. I was, I was a nomad of sorts too. So I worked in a bunch of different countries, and I was teaching in a lot of different places. Yeah, man, it, it's one of my favorite things about crypto is that you meet a lot of people. It's becoming less less of the case now as it's becoming a little bit more mainstream. Um, but so many of the people that you meet worked in totally unrelated industries before, mm-hmm. and I think that that really shows um, a passion a. a sort of a side of passion that I love because it means that they didn't go to college and they weren't like, um, I don't know, I guess I'll work in blockchain. They like literally went to school for something else or started in something else. And they were like, yeah. this thing is awesome. I want to go do this. I want to go do this. I want to go work in this. And so it, it took a lot more intentionality rather mm-hmm. than just, I, I guess I'll work in this thing. I got to pick a subject. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's really cool how many people, like almost everyone, maybe like you said, it might be that in the next, you know, few months or few years, it might start changing where, you know, more and more people are being deliberate about this being a career choice for them. And I think that's already starting to happen with like, you know, people who are entering computer science degrees and such now, where they're focusing on blockchain technologies from the beginning and like that's what they want to do but for our cohort you know well i guess you're from one cohort before me but from the people who kind of joined in in that period those few years they they did it for the passion of it and they did it because it spoke to them uh, in a different way from what it might do going forward so we've we've kind of in that sense yeah yeah, it kind of makes me jealous because I, I kind of feel like maybe in 10 more years, maybe I'll go back for another master's and um, like just go for a computer science master's because you get like this cool um, f- like foundation for everything rather than just being like, oh, I don't know. I got the, I got into this through e-finance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think like if, if depending on things go, I wouldn't mind going back to school either and just being like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go learn some cool stuff and do things that are more with my passions now than what my passions were before. So that's really cool. Let's, let's get back to you for a second though. Um, what's, what's next for you with Eat Staker and like in the life of Nixo, um, what are you looking forward to in like this next period that's coming up? So um, right now, Eastaker is doing um, something that I'm really excited about, which was which is the DBT Homestaker program. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, like I was getting a lot of questions about DBT, and it they none of them just like none of them made sense to me because I was like, why would anyone do DBT? Like basically, you're increasing your uptime, but also adding a middle layer that gets to take a cut of like basically everything that's going on. Um, and so they're they're inserting themselves as middlemen, and aren't we trying to get rid of middlemen? And like the biggest thing for me was it the the reason that it only helps big operators. Why I see it only helping big operators is because, um, so say say I have two ETH, and I say like oh, but I can run um, a validator with um, a bunch of other people, and we pool our thirty two ETH together. But first, I have to buy hardware that costs eight hundred dollars. Like, there's no way that you could convince anybody to do that if they knew anything about the economics of their situation, because they're making yep. three or four percent on this, and it would take years yes. to make up the hardware cost. And mm-hmm. so, I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know, like I understand that the cost of hardware is going down, but like 
DVT technology is imminently available. And I hope that it, rather than just increasing, so what what I see it doing is increasing the attestation, um, the, like the effectiveness of professional operators, which drives more revenue towards um, big professional operators um, and makes liquid staking more and more attractive. Um, but what it doesn't do is help homestakers very much. Um, and so I was thinking like it would be cool if we could onboard homestakers onto DVT while hardware is still where it is. And so what eStakers uh, is doing is we are running a program where um, we take, it's now 30, we um, upped the cap to 30. We're taking 30 students and um, we have an instructor, Stakesaurus, um, who is going to teach them how to run um, a validator. And the agreement is they purchase the hardware, they put down their one ETH that's re the that is required on Diva staking, um, and they get it up on testnet, they see how their performance is, and then they do the mainnet deposit. And once they have been live on mainnet for two months, then eStaker reimburses them the cost of their hardware up to a certain cap. We're like approving, we're right now going through approvals for people's um, hardware, which is difficult because like we're finding out that um, hardware in Brazil is a lot more expensive um, than hardware other places. And so like they are inherently going to have a more expensive setup. Um, and uh, so once they, once they are a home staker that is live on mainnet, then we reimburse the cost of their hardware. And at ideally at that point, we have 30 new home stakers in mostly in countries that are underrepresented um, in terms of node, uh, node prevalence. Um, nice. We got, 135 applications from 41 countries and I chose 30 um, 30 applications that were from 18 different countries um, and so I hope that this will like like some of the countries that, some of the countries that were chosen have like 12 nodes running in them right now <laughs> and so like adding one more is a huge percentage bump absolutely that's really great that's that's wonderful that, and when when is that looking to go live like so divas on testnet right now and it looks like they've they're about six months away maybe from mainnet launch or something like that um ideally they go live in um like late march early april um and so the program actually starts next monday um and the program runs for like 10 ish weeks um and the we're trying to we we tried to um, time it so that the end of the program is is at the Diva launch. Of course, it's a crypto protocol, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we follow Diva quite closely in the Rocket Pool community, and because there's a lot of overlap, of course, between the communities and with some of their developers and stuff popping pop by quite frequently to like answer questions and stuff. And I think that's quite an optimistic timeline. I I I hope that I'm like I hope that they can reach it. But I don't think many people in the Rocket Pool community are confident of them reaching that goal. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But I'm sure you know they'll come online eventually, <laughs> and then you'll have 30 new homestakers, which would be absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I think they're probably also set back by um, some amount of drama that might have happened in Diva. 
I, th- yeah, that, that's, that, that should be fine. I don't think that's going to be cause too many issues, but um, that that's great. Um, Nixo, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. Is there anything that you would like to cover that we might have missed or anything that you want to get out as a parting message to um, the audience here? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. And thank you so much for having me. I've seen um, some of your, some of your materials, some of your rocket fuel, some of your launch pads and like what the amount of energy that you bring to it is incredible. And I'm so glad that you do this. Thank you so much. I really, truly appreciate that. Like that really warms my heart. So yeah, that's really sweet of you to say, but um, I guess I'll see you in Denver um, in a month, less than a month now. And that's going to be, that's going to be really awesome. And I'm sending my best wishes to everyone in the Eat Staker community and home solo stakers because, of course, that's the gold standard. And I don't think I don't I don't I wasn't keeping count. Maybe somebody will count how many times you said home staker during this <laughs> during this call. <laughs> but uh, there's someone going to keep it, a tally for sure. It, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> they're going to get blackout drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Nick, so thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I will all uh, watch what you're doing with Eat Staker with great interest in the months and years coming. It was great talking to you, Wack. Bye. Bye.